Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. to another episode of Movie House Memories, the podcast where we look back and review the films that we think are the most important films in cinema history. I'm Patrick, and with me again are three people who spent a large portion of their lives in darkened movie theaters. First, he's our resident lumberjack and the man who sees symbolism in his cornflakes. He's one of the co-hosts of Criterion Critics and Lunchtime Movie Review Podcasts here on the MHN Podcast Network, Bobby Taylor. And I've been busy digging tunnels for the sequel 1918. <laughs> also with us, she's appeared as one of the co-hosts of both the Sunday Seconds with the Duke and the Golden Age of the Silver Screen podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network, the sole female voice of the show and my podcast better half, Lori Flores. Hello. <laughs> Also with us, he's one of the co-hosts of Male Bonding, the James Bond retrospective podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network. The man we th- we order first to get out of the ditch and lead the charge. You can follow him on Twitter at HeyBucker, Matt Palmer. It's good to be here, guys, but I got to wrap this up. I received word if I don't stop my brother from eating a certain burrito by tomorrow morning, there will be untold destruction. <laughs> All right, welcome everyone, and before we get started, we'd like to thank all the returning listeners to the show, and welcome all new listeners to Movie House Memories. Thanks for downloading us and giving us a try. We appreciate your time and attention, and hope you keep on listening and following us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of these social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, you can now subscribe to our account on YouTube, where we're releasing our podcasts exclusively. Once there, if you uh, trigger your notifications to give you updates, uh, you can get uh, information as when we post new material. Uh, You can give us a like or dislike, and even possibly give a, a comment or a suggestion for a film that you think is one of the best films of all time. And whether you're a frequent listener or a brand new fan of our little show, we hope you take the time after you're done listening and provide us with a little feedback. Uh, You can do this a couple different ways. Uh, You can go to our website at moviehousememories.com. Once there, you can leave a comment about either our podcasts, our opinions, or or the film that we're reviewing. You can also rate the film uh, at our website so we can get a consensus rating uh, from the Movie House Memories Podcast Network community. Or as stated before, you can also leave a comment on YouTube about our podcast, our opinions, or the film that we're reviewing. As always, we'd love to hear the positive feedback, but we appreciate anything anyone has to say about any of our little shows. Now with the horrible business out of the way, let's get on to Matt's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time, 1917's, or sorry, 2019's, 1917. And Matt, you have a summary for <laughs> Got got my my years mixed up there. Apologize. So, and this is going to be one continuous, uh, seamless, without interruption summary, right? I have to do it in one breath. Okay, there. You, that sounds about the equal of the film. Can you tell me a story? Lance Corporal Blake is woken up from sleeping against a tree and told to choose a partner and report to his commanding officer. He chooses his friend Lance Corporal Schofield. And the two of them soon learn that Blake's brother, along with hundreds of other men, are soon to attack into a trap set by the German army. Blake and Schofield are tasked with carrying a message to call off the attack, which is to occur the next morning. They set off together across no man's land, not sure if the Germans had actually withdrawn. When they find the German trench is empty, they're nearly buried alive by a booby trap explosive left to kill them. Soon after, they come upon an abandoned farmhouse and see English planes down a German fighter. Blake and Schofield rescue the German pilot from the flaming wreckage, and Blake is stabbed for his efforts and dies at the farmhouse. 
Schofield promises to write to Blake's mother. Schofield is able to ride a ways in a British truck and then must cross into German-held territory alone. He dodges gunfire, suffers a concussion, provides much-needed milk to a French infant, and nearly drowns, escaping before he finds the English unit about to attack. Schofield attempts to find Colonel McKenzie and call off the attack. As he runs through the trenches, the first wave of the attack is sent out. He exits the trench and runs across the battlefield to deliver his message sooner. Upon finding McKenzie, the attack is reluctantly called off, and the first wave is brought back. Schofield sets out to find Blake's brother, and eventually finds him tending to the wounded. After informing him about his brother's heroic death, Schofield lies down to rest against a tree and looks at photographs of his family. All right. Films are influenced by the times they're made in, and we look back at some of the big news events in Lori Flores' headlines of the time. The year was 2019. U.S. President Donald Trump was charged with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Many parents were indicted for a college admissions cheating scandal, including actresses Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman. Hedge fund manager Jeffrey Epstein was arrested for sex trafficking and conspiracy. He was later found dead in his jail cell The suspicious death was ruled a suicide. Popular songs in 2019 were Bad Guy by Billie Eilish, Sucker by the Jonas Brothers, and Juice by Lizzo. The top 10 films released in 2019 were Avengers Endgame, Lion King, Frozen 2, Spider-Man, Far From Home, Captain Marvel, Joker, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, Toy Story 4, Aladdin, and Jumanji, The Next Level. 2019 just feels like it was yesterday. (laughs) It wasn't that long ago. (laughs) We were watching the same movie over and over again with all the sequels, too. (laughs) I was going to say, was that just a sponsorship ad there for Disney products? Because most of those were Disney-related. They sure were, but that that was a top 10 list of top grossing films. It was a good year for them a good year for Disney. Why'd they raise the park prices? Yeah, because it was followed by a shitty year for Disney the very next year. I forgot about that. (laughs) That's right. It's amazing when you don't have any movies and you don't have any parks, how how much you really do rely on those things. All right. Uh, Did you close that out? Yeah. Okay. All right. (laughs) All right. That was 2019. All right. Just in case you hadn't said that, but I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Let's start by talking about the casting of the film. Uh, and we have George McKay playing Lance Corporal Schofield. Uh, Matt, this is your pick, so I'll let you start with who I would say is the lead actor in the film, although it doesn't get top billing because I think they actually put billing in in the order of appearance. Uh, he's brilliant. I think it was a was a really challenging role to to have to play someone who's kind of um, going through so much and having to express things so subtly through such a stoic character. I thought it was a was a a really great performance from from a guy who seemed completely bought into the role and and took some great writing and and brought it to life really. That's statement of brilliant is perfectly uh, appropriate for for George McKay. I had seen him in the miniseries 112263 just the year before and I really enjoyed him in that when he was he had a southern accent so it was really interesting for this British uh, to me a, a no name to come out of nowhere and act so well. But he really pulled the, the character off. He had a lot of things that he was not saying, but he said uh, through his actions or his eyes. Uh, and he, you could tell that this kid, he had seen a world of pain and was just trying to survive the war, which, which was exactly what the, not just the role 
needed, but the movie needed uh, for us to understand that World War One was was worse than we ever imagined. This was very well done. Well done, George McKay. I completely agree. It was brilliant and yeah, well done. Yeah, yeah. I'm I am not familiar with his work, and although he looks familiar to me. I didn't look him up on IMDb and I was really impressed with his performance because there's a lot where he's by himself and he can't express himself with words. So it's everything else, which I think is somewhat the, the skills of a, a truly talented actor is how you can communicate things as Bobby just said through actions in his eyes. And it, he does a really fantastic job with that. Uh, even to imply what he's thinking when he's thinking it uh, is he, you know, he really does lead the viewer into that. Uh, and I, it's a lot to be said of how his nonverbal acting uh, really kind of carries this film. Uh, but then he has a compatriot, a somewhat doomed compatriot, Dean Charles Chapman playing Lance Corporal Blake. Uh, Bobby, what did you think of Lance Corporal Blake? I thought he did a, a very fine job. I think his job was much less nuanced as George McKay's was because his role was to be the the brother carrying the message that ultimately ended up being the the doomed brother and his he wasn't I mean he was in not even half the film. So it I think his role was was diminished in that manner and I think of the two, you were cheering for George McKay. You just saw his backstory was he was hiding it, whereas Chapman at, or, or Corporal Blake, Lance Corporal Blake, was telling you everything up front as to who he was, which was borderline cowardly but yet brave to make sure his, his brother gets through or is saved. So I thought he was fine, but I could have seen a hundred other actors playing the same character. Whereas McKay was special. I thought that Dean Charles Chapman was special too. I thought that he did a great job with that role. And I found the death, his death scene very moving. Um, I, I, I think he was, he was special as well. I agree that, um, that George McKay had more nonverbal acting, but, but um, both of them were really carried they were crucial roles and they were able to carry this film, both of them. Yeah. I like Bobby's take. I don't, I don't think it was as challenging a role as, as the Schofield role. I'm really glad they didn't cast Tom Holland in it. I'm not against Tom Holland. I just think it would have been distracting. I'm, I'm glad it was somebody I wasn't too familiar with. I never, I never watched game of Thrones. So for me, it was, it was better kind of going in kind of fresh with the actors I, I did think the death scene was was particularly good, and I don't know if you guys noticed. I'm curious how they pulled it off, but the the makeup effect they pulled off, where they managed to kind of <clears throat> drain the blood from his face without ever cutting the the shot. I thought that was was really really neat how they pulled that off. I don't know how they did it. I, yeah, I have no idea how they did that. I kind of noticed that as well. I, I agree with you that the the death scene was probably his highlight of it. I don't find <laughs> most of the other acting by him exceptional. N not that it's bad. It's just that I, he he's just kind of the compatriot of Schofield, and possibly because I saw the trailer for the film, I you know I just saw. Blake as dead man walking. It's like, he's not going to survive the journey. And it made sense to me in the story since his brother is at the other end. It's that he's not going to get there to see his brother. And uh, so I was just waiting for him to die. I, I got to say he died earlier than I thought he was going to. I didn't expect it at that point in time. Uh, but uh, I, I didn't, I, I thought his performance was okay, but it wasn't nearly as good as McKay's performance. Now for a third I had trying to come up for the third actor and this, and this is very much an ensemble piece and you have some very, very talented actors playing very, very small roles. Uh, not one of which was, uh, 
the one playing Colonel McKenzie, which essentially is almost the MacGuffin of it. Is where Schofield's trying to get and finding a Colonel McKenzie. It's that's ultimately not what the film is about. It's the the, the kind of the, the entirety of the journey. Um, but it's played by Benedict Cumberbatch, obviously an actor who was just nominated this year for Best Actor. Uh, Lori, what did you think of Benedict Cumberbatch playing Colonel McKenzie? Wow, he had a look about him in this that was that I haven't seen hadn't seen in him before. He's he is an amazing actor, and what's so incredible to me with him is that he can play, you know, um, Doctor Strange, Sherlock Holmes, and I forget that I'm watching him, and I think that's a real gift. And I know it it wasn't meant to be that he was in it more, but I I would have loved to have seen him in it more. You forgot Khan. You forgot Khan. How could you forget Khan? Forgive me. <laughs> right. Yeah, he he was good. I I really like the the ensemble they put together for this one. You had Andrew Scott just briefly. You had Mark Strong. You had Colin Firth for crying out loud. And they're all very talented and, and putting them in even for this little, I I'm curious how they pulled that off too. But, um, I think any one of those guys could have been mentioned here. Uh, well, they told them that they would not have to do any promotion for this film. <laughs> they could just show up, do their scenes and not go on a press tour. That's how they did they really, yeah, that was how they got them. Wow. Well, and they only needed them for one day each. Yeah. I mean, this, this was filmed in, I mean, it, this had to have been a, a fast film uh, to, to produce, uh, not the editing portion that would have probably taken a year, but the, the rest of it was, was pretty, pretty quick. So I, yeah, to have multiple Oscar nominees slash winners in your cast, uh, to have both Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty playing, uh, on opposite ends, by the way, that was kind of neat. A, a on opposite ends of the the battlefield from one another on the same side. And Mr. Darcy. <laughs> yeah. Well, different set, different show, but, but yeah. It My was, favorite. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought that having that cast, the talent that was in this film was immense. So the fact that they were able to pull it off with that many cameos, to be honest, it was a cameo. Uh, I thought was 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 impressive, but the fact is, is George McKay carried oh well, and and Chapman uh, as the Blake for portion of it. But it, this was a one man show, and I thought that everybody else played their parts extremely well. And I'm a giant Cumberbatch fan, always have been from long, long ago in Amazing Grace. That was the first time I ever saw him, so been a fan ever since. So he did great. Couldn't have found a better actor. Yeah, I, I like Benedict Cumberbatch a lot, and and, and ironically, as much as I'm a comic book fan, and not for Doctor Strange, uh, but I liked him for pretty much everything else he's done. I, you know, I was wondering, and I didn't realize that he was in the film, who was going to play Mackenzie. And when I saw it was Cumberbatch, I went, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, I, I was very, very pleased with that role. Um, I thought it was interesting, the kind of the lead up from Mark Strong saying, Hey, when you tell him and you deliver the letter, make sure they're witnesses. You know, some people get kind of caught in the, the fog of battle and, you know, kind of the ego of it, that that really wasn't that big of a deal <laughs> once it got there. Cause I was like, Hey, you know, like a Chekhov's, you know, uh, you know, gun, like you, you tell me that at the beginning, cause I thought it was going to be crucial at the end, but it actually didn't turn out to be that big a deal. Once he saw the letter, he backed off. So it was kind of the anticlimactic. <laughs> You know what would have been funny, though, is if Andrew Scott would have delivered that line about the Sherlock Holmes character. Yeah, that would have been that would, that, have, been. That would have been funnier. Yeah. But, but uh, I, I liked it in a small role, but I will agree with what Matt said, that there was a, a long series of cameos by a lot of very, very talented actors uh, coming in and out of throughout the film at that really, really built the strength of the film, but gave it a really good pedigree that, you know, that I, I didn't necessarily need to see more from Colin Firth. I didn't really need to see uh, anything more from Scott or Cumberbatch. They fulfilled their role, even uh, Richard Madden at the very end playing the brother. You know, I, I, I didn't expect to see him there. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, that there's a, a another a little cameo at the end that I really enjoyed, but it was a long series of them. Um, well, Matt, I, I know 
I'm assuming that one of the reasons you really like this film is the way that it is edited and cut by the cinematography, cinematographer, the editor, as well as the director, Sam Mendes, uh, making it appear to be almost, almost a seamless one shot for the entirety of the film. Is that one of the reasons that this film drew your attention when it came out? Oh, absolutely. You, you realize it wasn't one shot, right? <laughs> Yes. Okay, yes, everybody. Like, everybody, back to step one. <laughs> it, it's funny how, you know, it, it, you see movies, you, you, old movies like Rope. I just watched um, a movie that very much felt like it, like it might have been at home on the stage. I watched um, the the outfit, and you have these kind of one one set one place movies. And you can have these really long shots, and it's wonderful, and it works. There are so many moving parts in this movie, and such elaborate sets, and such intricate choreography, I think, just to get everyone where they need to be to complete this shot. It, it turned out so beautifully, and it was so captivating. And I could only imagine what it would have been like to forget your line on that set with how much work they had to do to set each of those up. Um, I think... I think you know, from the, the perspective of the cinematography and editing, I thought it was a masterpiece. I don't have anything to add. Matt <laughs> said it all. It is truly an editing masterpiece. Nothing more needs said. I completely, I completely agree. I would, I would just say that the, this is such a well-made film and it's so perfectly cast that I feel like there should be an award for casting when I watch a film like this and just um, how crucial that is to the, um, yeah, this is a, I, there's very few flaws in this film. It's amazing. Well, from an artistic standpoint, it's, you know, uh, I spent most of the film watching to try to see if I could figure out where the cuts are. (laughs) And, and other than the unconscious sequence that comes halfway through, there's no obvious cuts to me. Um, so, the, I mean, that's a masterful editing. Uh, also, probably a little bit of special effects. But I, I just, it, it just, it's just really impressive that you can just have this kind of seamless storyline going for two hours straight uh, and not have any kind of cut whatsoever. Uh, apparently, there were actual 48 edits and there were se- sequences that were only a few seconds long and then there were sequences that were eight minutes long. But to ha- even a, you know an eight-minute-long sequence is an impressive sequence in Hollywood standards, especially in a war film. <laughs> You've got bombs and bullets and a lot of other things going on around that. To have the characters just you know remember their lines and keep going, even the at the end when he's running across the battlefield trying to get to Mackenzie, where he collides with two different people charging the German lines. That was by accident. And he had the wherewithal to just just pretend like it happened and just keep going, you know, get up off the ground and keep running and ran for, I think, was it a quarter of a mile uh, for that the entire sequence? Uh, so uh, th- that's that's really impressive. I, 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 it's something to be said for this film. And this film needs to be seen for for no other reason, just for that, which I know is very technical and really cinephile of us all. But it's really, really impressive. There is one editing fault, and that was as he was running on that battlefield, his legging came undone, and it was done when he went into the medical tent at the end. And and he they never left him in the film. There's always got to be a nitpicker. That's all I got to say. <laughs> always got to have got to have a goof. What about uh, symbolism and hidden meanings, Bobby? Uh, I've got a couple, and I don't know if I'm necessarily on point, but I'm trying to give an idea. Uh, I have, by not being destroyed when he was a threat by Lance Corporal Blake, the rat in the, in the, um, what is it, the, the dugout, uh, symbolized Judas Iscariot by betraying the trust by stepping on the tripwire that buried uh, Schofield alive. And as Schofield was believed dead, he was resurrected by Blake and took on the mantle from the doomed Blake, similar to how Jesus uh, took the message uh, and Schofield became the savior for the 1600 British soldiers by passing the message to their superiors. 
the milk Schofield provided the young mother and the baby symbolized a proper miracle for the baby to survive in a doomed and barren city, just as Moses striking a rock in the desert during the Jewish exodus from Egypt so they could survive. And the tree in the opening and the tree in the ending symbolized the peaceful, quiet world prior to the start of the insanity of World War One, and once the war ended, returning to the peaceful norm. It also symbolized, symbolized Schofield's damaged and desperate attempt to run to the end of the war to return to the loved ones in his photo wallet, even though he was changed from the innocent beginning of the film to the bombastic and terrifying end of the film. Yeah, I, I really liked the way they began and ended the movie. Book ended with with resting against the trees. I think I think Bobby really spoke well about you know you kind of managed to encapsulate the whole war in one day with that little that mm-hmm. little nod. I think it was really smart. Chris, is that you with the Jesus symbolism? <laughs> well, the resurrection <laughs> part was fairly obvious, wasn't it? <laughs> Well, well said. I especially, as Matt said, like the tree. But, um, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I I don't really have much to add. You, I was actually struggling. I, you point out those and I, those things, and and I go, okay, yeah, I could see that. But I was like, ah, I think I think Bobby's going to have a hard time with symbolism in this one. But yeah, you didn't. Uh, the tree was obvious. I, I'm surprised I didn't get that one. But yeah, that was. Uh, that was that's a good good call there. What about moral universe, Matt? So this this one has a lot of the kind of standard war themes in there about uh, you know normal people being caught up in it, and and a lot of those are are pretty pretty readily available. I, the thing I want to talk about I I noticed the the theme of the cherry trees coming up in the movie. It, cherry trees are are uh, known for taking longer to mature than a lot of other fruit trees. So when you cut down a cherry tree, you're, you're cutting down a lot of work and um, time. And you'll, you'll notice the scene where they, they came across that orchard and the Germans had just cut them all down, even though there wasn't any fruit on them when they left. It's just an, an act of destruction to try to keep anything from falling into the hands of, of their enemies. And, and I, I think you, you see that theme crop up a little bit of things like cherry trees. You had that town that was leveled that looked pretty old. You had the cows that were shot, um, which were, again, just to prevent them from, from being useful to someone else. And then he also kind of had these these young men who are like those cherry trees and that there's you know a lot of time and effort that, that goes into them, a lot of care into them, and that they just kind of get destroyed in, in all of this. And I think that was a little subtle nod that that this movie had that's a little more profound than a lot of your standard war movie morality. I agree with what Matt's saying. I think that there's a lot to be said for the background of war uh, besides just the bullets and the the bodies and the and the death. I think there's a lot to be said for how wars are are run by both sides. Uh, we're watching we're witnessing that right now with the Ukrainian uh, devastation that's going on is sometimes it, it depends on who's who's got the power as to what is happening on the battlefield and and beyond um, and who it's affecting. So yeah, I, I think the war doesn't usually have a lot of morals and I think that's the danger of war is is where we lose our 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 humanity. I think this film had a really good way of explaining how innocence is uh, poisoned as the story progressed and how at the very end that desperation to survive will is, is something that we don't normally get to see uh, or experience from the eyes of the people that are going through that devastation. But uh, I think Matt's right on in the fact that those that are that are in power are not willing or, or they are willing to destroy good and legacies simply for the fact that they don't want their opposition to have uh, when they can't have it themselves. I think that's a pretty disgusting way of looking at it, but that's what war does. Um, yeah, very. I, I really liked what you had to say, Matt. 
I, I just really appreciate that about this film, that it was based on true stories and, and those stories are, are so amazing. I think that also just the, the source material. Yeah. The, as Bobby was saying, the, the humanity and, um, I was just in Washington and the cherry trees were starting to bloom. It was really beautiful. So that kind of took me that back to that, but. All right. Uh, well, Usually we talk about the music. This is usually Shane's aspect. Shane's not here again tonight. Uh, film composed by Thomas Newman, a, f- a frequent collaborator with Sam Mendes, uh, collaborated on the two James Bond films. Uh, obviously, uh, Matt and I have reviewed those films before. Lori, what did you think of the music section of this film? It was. It really complemented the film and really set the stage. And I'm curious to hear what Matt said because I was thinking that I thought he would like it, that it wasn't obnoxious by his standards. Well, let's ask him, Matt. <laughs> it's funny you should ask. <laughs> I, I liked it. It got a little heavy at times when, when Schofield was out of the trench running. The music was distracting me a little bit. I think they could have toned it down there and it would have been better. But overall, it was it was good and I liked it. I, I really liked it. I don't know if it's technically the score, but the the way they mixed in the sound of that one guy singing to the soldiers and it kind of fades in as he approaches it and, and takes it over. It was mixed in really well and just from the from a you know drama and, and um, timing standpoint worked really well in the movie. Yeah, I think what Laurie and Matt both said uh, is appropriate. I think that this is a film that it it was a compliment to the storyline uh the music was uh the the audio choices that they made uh sometimes were a little overwhelming at times but for the most part it was done really well there was one scene in particular that i remember where uh, Schofield and Blake were both uh, as they went from their sa- the safety of their trench uh, at the uh, initial departure across no man's land in part of the sound, I was listening. The conduct or the um, well composer had inserted, and I don't know if it was just what I was hearing, but it sounded like heartbeats that were that were speeding up and slowing down uh, with each thing that they were coming across. Whether it was a, a dead body or a horse or a, an opening in the in the the chain, uh, whatever it was, it was something that uh, I I I took out of it that I really liked in it. But this is not a soundtrack that I would go out and buy, but it definitely added it added intensity to the film that we needed as, at uh, at appropriate times. I even felt like their breathing was part of the music. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I like Thomas Newman. I'm familiar with his work primarily with Sam Mendes um, to take Matt's threshold of it didn't distract me. Uh, it didn't up until the sequence Matt mentioned the when he's running across the battlefield towards the end of the film. I thought it lo- became a little bit bombastic and overbearing at that point. It was a little bit distracting, even though that was a climax of the film or one of the climaxes. Uh, but throughout the rest of the film, I'd be hard pressed to recall the music. It didn't distract me. I thought it complemented it well, which was a good sign. But it's weird is I, I don't really feel the urge to go and buy or pick up the soundtrack off iTunes, even though I've got a few other Thomas Newman soundtracks. And uh, that kind of surprised me after I got done watching the film that I was like, Oh, I wonder who composed this when I was getting these notes ready. I went, Oh, that was Newman. I didn't, didn't even realize that. And I should have, because he always works with Mendez. But that's just, I don't know. It was very kind of, it was there. That's all I can say. All right. Ending of the film. Uh, obviously we've discussed it. Uh, Schofield finishes, completes his mission a little bit late, um, but definitely saves, you know, thousands of soldiers from being killed, uh, delivers his message to McKenzie and then delivers a message to, uh, uh Corporal Blake's older brother, uh, telling, informing him of his uh, brother's death. And then as we've kind of said, the book ends of him once again, sitting in exhaustion and by a tree, kind of the way he starts out at the uh, beginning or the, uh, how the film starts out at the beginning of the, of the movie. Um, what did you guys think of the ending and somewhat the quiet ending for a large world war one, you know, explosions film, the 
the the quietness of the the ending specifically with Blake's brother and then the tree sequence. I love the way they ended the movie. I, it it needed it needed that extra tension that came from him showing up just a little bit too late. So there's kind of that that ending and then I kind of already mentioned it so I'll be brief, but the way they they ended it with with him relaxing under the tree, I thought was was just a, the perfect way to kind of release the the pent up energy of all that intensity and um and and fade it out so i thought it was very well done well we reviewed all quiet on the western front several months ago and this had kind of the same quiet ending with with more of a hollywood ending uh than than the other film but this one what i i did like the ending with one exception which was I do believe that they kept Schofield's background a little too secret up until the very, very end. I think I, I would have liked to have known a little bit more about his him personally. I mean, we learned a little bit about Blake and his cherry trees and his background, you know, growing up and and that kind of thing. Uh, we even learned a little bit from his brother about what Blake was like as a, as a kid. But Schofield was basically a mystery through most of the film, and I would have liked to have known about his family a little earlier than the very last scene. So that's the only nitpick that I would have about it. Otherwise, it was very well done. I loved how it began and ended, like Matt said, as a bookend. And I just – I think that the a movie about a giant – horrifying war as the great war uh, to that generation to end the way it did was the right call. I agree. I think it, I, with uh, Matt, I think it was a perfect ending to this film. And I think it was just so fitting after the two days that he had lived and the chaos and, um, and then to just end quietly with him just finally catching his breath and I, I thought it was very moving. Alright, I, I liked the ending. I've kind of already hinted at that I got a little confused of why did you give me the throwaway line from Mark Strong earlier in the film about people ignoring uh, orders because uh, I thought that was going to play out <laughs> into the in some way it was going to play out into the storyline and so it was kind of like, oh, okay, well that was 30 seconds. It was kind of wasted. Uh, it didn't really come into play I, I like the quiet aspect of it i thought the drama of informing the elder blake about the loss of his brother was a little short a little abrupt uh, but i really like it, it, kind of the tree and i didn't even re i didn't even realize and i saw it but I didn't realize the booking book ending aspect until it was brought up in the podcast here but i like that just seeing this this guy who's been through hell for 48 hours just collapse. I mean, it just seemed very real to me at that moment as, as far as filmmaking is that, you know, he's, he's not going to celebrate. He's not going to get a, you know, a medal, uh, you know, placed on his chest by Mackenzie, you know, which would be like kind of the true Hollywood ending. It's just going to be, he's going to find his own quiet place and just collapse in exhaustion. And that just seemed really real to me and spoke to me in that way that, that there was a, there, there was a realness to the, the, the writing and the character. All right. Films legacy nominated for 10 Academy Awards. I didn't realize it was nominated for that many, uh, winning three, one best cinematography, best visual effects and best sound mixing lost best picture to parasite lost best director. Uh, Sam Mendes lost to Bong Joon Ho for parasite, uh, lost best original screenplay to parasite Lost Best Makeup and Hairstyling to Bombshell. Best Production Design to Once Upon, Lost to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Best Original Score to uh, Lost to Joker. And Best Sound Editing, Lost to Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, is on no AFI list, but this is a very recent film, so give it some time. Uh, number 122 on IMDb's Top 250 Films list. It was chosen by the National Board of Review and the American Film Institute as one of the 10 best films of 2019 in 2019. In 2021, Screen Rant ranked the film as number six on its list of best World War I films, which I, I'd be hard-pressed to think of 10 off the top of my head. Uh, so, 
but <laughs> maybe I, I haven't seen a lot of older films. Made on a budget of approximately $100 million, grossed over $384 million worldwide, and Rotten Tomatoes has it at 88% critics and 88% audience, and that is the numbers on 1917. What do you guys think of the numbers, and would you put this in your top 100? Bobby. I think that the legacy is going to grow the longer this film is out there in our in our lexicon. Uh, I I do believe that the Academy was trying real hard to award a foreign film as the best film of the year that year, because I honestly believe in the grand scheme of things, as good a movie as Parasite was, 1917 was the better film of the year. It deserved best picture. J- and it, it it's just like what Dune did this year in the Academy Awards. It won a whole bunch of editing and sound, but deserved higher accolades as a film. This film is a very, very good film. World War One films. I was I actually pulled them up myself because I like World War One. My my grandfather uh, served in World War One. He was gassed in 1917 in France. Uh, lost lost one of his lungs. Um, survived, but it was a brutal war that we don't really appreciate today um, as as it happened back then. So I think. Seeing the brutality, um, the sheer force of of the of the sides as they fought in trenches of all things. I mean, trenches are really not something you would see much of today in the in the classic way that we saw in this film. So I, I, there's a lot to be said uh, that's great about this film, not just good, but great about it. And I think that George McKay was amazing as Schofield. I thought the editing was stupendous. Um, Birdman won Best Picture uh, for pulling off the same thing in a, in a very small theater in New York. This was done on a grand battlefield um in france so uh, over 48 hours so this is extremely well done extremely great film um i won't put it in my top 100 um simply because it's full of other films but this is definitely worthy of a film and if you've never seen it out there that folks that are listening this is a film that you really should watch it's it's excellent well thanks matt for for recommending it laurie well this is an amazing film. And as much as I, as Bobby said, as much as I liked Parasite, I think this is going to have the, the lasting legacy. And, um, I guess kids are going to watch it in schools when they learn about world war one. And, and I just think as I felt with Schindler's list and other films, it's just so important for these stories to be told. And, and that's part of what makes film so important and this is one of those films that I want to put it in my top 100. I know I don't have room, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> All right. Lori's working on her second top 100. Um, I had not seen this film and I'd owned it. I'd purchased it uh, for streaming back when it was initially released around the time of the Academy Awards and just never got around to it. And uh, I had wanted to see it. It has a pedigree and has uh, even the subject matter, something that generally interests me. Um, and I hadn't gotten around to it. Now, that being said, I really enjoyed watching it. Uh, it's a technical marvel. Uh, the kind of the seamless, uh, well, the, the lack of editing to it or the appearance of no editing that just one seamless cut through the entirety of the film is really, really impressive. Now, that being said, I think that is not that's going to be lost on most people who watch the movie. Uh, they wouldn't even notice it. Uh, and th- that's a shame that they don't, but it's, it, it really makes it, a, it gives it a different vibe. It gives it a different, a, a sense of life to it that I think a lot of films that are being edited and chopped up don't have. Now, uh, I am surprised it was nominated for 10 Academy Awards because I didn't remember it being nominated for quite that many. I'm not surprised that the, none of the actors were nominated. That doesn't surprise me. A lot of, uh, this is a very, a technological marvel of a film and I'm not, it it does not blow me away that it won more of the technical aspects of it. Now I loved Parasite and I will agree with the statement. This will be the film that has a longer lasting legacy that people will talk about and remember very likely 20 years from now and Parasite will not because I don't think too many people remember Parasite right now. 
spot uh, from a film a cinephile perspective, Parasite was a kind of, to me, it caught me off guard and really surprised me with its storytelling where this, the technological aspects of it, the editing, the cinematography, the directing, uh, the production design, set design, all that stuff is amazing. But at the end of the day, the story is not really that complicated and not something that I hadn't really seen a different variation of before. So I appreciate the technological aspect of it. And I really like the movie, but it is nowhere near my top 100 of films. I, I think this is more, it's one of, it's one of those films like rope where it's, it's going to get kind of this, Hey, it's known for this and that's what it's known for. And it's not known for overwhelmingly great storytelling. Um, it, I think it's just from the, the technological aspect of the, the lack of uh, appearance of cutting in the film. But this is Matt's pick. We give him the final word to defend the, the, his choice. I, I was had planned to say exactly what Bobby said, that I think over time this, this movie's legacy will grow. I think Parasite is one of the most overrated movies uh, <laughs> that ever, ever won many Academy Awards. We could probably do a whole podcast with me just talking about that. It was probably the fifth or sixth best movie I saw that year, which was incidentally a really good year for movies. It was, but you know, I think I think uh, I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have expected this movie to lose to three or four other movies that year, but Parasite was um, I think all hype. Otherwise, you know, you can't, I, you can't blame a movie for not having a, a great legacy that's so that's so recent. I don't I don't um, I don't think the legacy is inappropriate. I, what I appreciate most about this movie is it has this this technological this technical feat it pulled off. But that feat, everything about it enhanced the the storytelling and the movie watching experience. That that kind of seamless editing thing they did, I think, drew me into the story much more. It gave me a, a, a sense of there being larger stakes of this being a more um, compact and intense experience. And that's something that I think was so difficult to pull off, but worked so well and had a specific purpose. It wasn't just someone showing off. So I think this is, I think this is a great movie. I, it, it's actually pretty high on my list. I think just because of how well this very simple story was told in such a captivating way. You, you know, Matt, and something I will agree with you there is I don't think Mendez or the other filmmakers were doing this for novelty. I think they were doing it to enhance the film. Uh, and I, I agree, agree with you on that because there are people who will do it like even in the player. And I love the movie, the player, but the entire opening sequence is a, is a long continuous take while the, everybody on the, on this lot is talking about films with long continuous takes. And that was a novelty that, that they were poking, they were, making a point of something, but they only, even then that, that take, I think was, what is it, Bobby? Like 10 minutes on the player. Yeah. The player that opens the, it's, the opening is eight minutes, eight minutes. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's a, in, in comparison, it's, you know, but it's an actual one take shot. It's not, it was not a cut in any way, shape or form. And you're missing the cuts. It's an actual beginning to end sequence. But I, I, I do not mean to downplay like talking about 1917 as that, oh, it's going to be known for this. It's going to be known for it. And it's not for the novelty of it. It's just, it's, it's to the, it, it's such a rarity to see a film like this. Uh, and I, and I don't mean to downplay that they were doing it just trying, well, this film, this is what it'll be known for. No, it should be known for a lot of other things too, that the production design was amazing. You know, costuming was amazing. It won make it or sorry, it was nominated for makeup and hairstyling which kind of surprised me because I didn't see a lot in this film that would scream nominate me for an Oscar, but it got nominated in that category. So there was a lot of really impressive units working on this film that I think that are worthy of the attention. I just ultimately didn't think the story was that good. And I will, uh, one thing I will agree with you, Parasite was not the best movie of that year. I like it over this one for best picture, but uh, I, I have long since said that my favorite film of that year was Marriage Story. Um, and there was no way in hell that was going to win Best Picture because no one wants to see a film about divorce. 
<laughs> well, I would also say that this film is the extended version of the end sequence of Gallipoli. Yeah. Which is of the same era, which also carried the weight of that film. You that whole film, you're building up getting to know these two characters, but the very end of that film, the last twenty minutes was the was the the emotional roller coaster of that film of the runner trying to run the message across the battlefield. This film here was two hours of that emotional ringer and it, it by the end of it, you are exhausted. You really see that Schofield when he lays sits down by the tree. You kind of want to sit next to him, going, "Whew, that was a rough one." Yeah. So, I mean, this one, this has a, this carries a lot of uh, weight for two hours that a lot of films, even though you know, Patrick, you're right, it's a simple story. But Matt's also right in that simplicity. There's a beauty, and there is some some severe technical merits that makes this such an outstanding film. Can I can I give a shout out to Jojo Rabbit? I love that sure. movie. <laughs> that was another great movie. That, this was, was, one of, that was a, one of the best years of movies I think there ever yeah. was. Jojo, Jojo Rabbit agree. was a really great film too. I, yeah. I don't know if I like it better than Marriage Story or Parasite, um, but I really did enjoy the film when I saw that one. Yeah, and I liked Marriage Story too. It was it was an outstanding year for film. What Matt just said. All right. Well, that does it for this uh, month's review of 1917 before we digress into a discussion of all the films that came out in 2019. Uh, thanks again for joining us and listening to our little monthly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. Uh, as we stated before, you can follow us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN podcast network. Additionally, don't forget to subscribe to our account on YouTube where we're now releasing our podcasts exclu exclusively there. Once you subscribe to our account and update your notifications, you can get alerts of when we post new material. Uh, you can give us a like or dislike if you so choose, and you can give us a comment about either our opinions or the film we're reviewing, or even a suggestion for a film that you think should be in the top 100. As always, we'd love to hear positive feedback, but we appreciate any kind of feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. Well, that does it for this episode of Movie House Memories. Join us next time when it is my next pick for one of the greatest films of all time, and I'm choosing 1987's The Untouchable, Untouchables with Kevin Costner and Robert De Niro and Sean Connery, of course. Can't forget Sean Connery. Uh, until then, uh, I'm Patrick. I'm Bobby, and I'm thankful to my grandfather for surviving World War I so I could be here to review films. Good night. And I'm pretty sure we recorded this podcast in one take, which makes us roughly 43 times more talented than Sam Mendes. <laughs> Correct. But I will still make ed uh, edits, but they'll be seamless, and no one will know that we did we said additional material. So, all right. And, Silky smooth. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and we'll see you all next time at our house. is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Movie House Memories, Hiding Your Reality, is provided courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com under Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content for this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. <laughs>